You're listening to the teaching ministry of Harvest Fellowship Church in Boyertown, Pennsylvania. You can find out more about us on the web at www.harvestfellowshipchurch.org. We pray that through our teaching, we may present everyone mature in Christ. Let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer, and we are going to jump right in. Father, we come before you tonight. And it is in the name of Jesus that we come, the one who has commissioned all of his disciples to go forth to declare his word, to proclaim his gospel. What a privilege, what an honor. Oh Lord, I pray that as we examine your word tonight, that by your Holy Spirit that you would speak to our hearts drive the fear from our hearts except for that proper fear of God. Help us, we pray, O Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let me give a very short recap of last week, where we went through verses 16 through 23. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, we saw Jesus instructing the twelve and and telling them that he was sending them out as sheep among wolves. Sheep among wolves and that they would need a balance of wisdom and innocence. In the next two verses, in 17, 18, we saw this, this hard road. Jesus envisions for them this hard road, and there was a call to them to be in constant alert for evil men. There was going to be evil men who were going to be evil to them. They were going to deliver them over to to courts, to governors, to kings, and to Gentiles. And so when that happened, Jesus said, and he didn't say if, he said, when this happens, the apostles, he said, I don't want you to prepare a self-defense or to be anxious for the spirit or to be anxious for the spirit of the Father would speak through them in those very moments. He went on to say that persecution would escalate And it would even come from family members, which was, I'm sure, a shock to them. And the hatred against God's kingdom disciples would be so intense that it would often lead to physical death. And yet, we see that those with a persevering faith enduring to the end receive eternal life. In the last verse, in verse 23, we saw this prudence that's heralded by Jesus where he says, in situations where persecution is avoidable, avoid it. When it's not avoidable, then you you deal with it as it comes. And the last statement that Jesus made is this declaration um, that the mission to Israel itself would not be complete before the Son of Man comes. And we looked at two different interpretations um, related to that statement. And so that brings us tonight to verse 24. So take your Bibles and turn in them, if you haven't already, to John or to Matthew chapter 10. And tonight we're going to read through verses 24 through 33. Hear now the word of the Lord. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? 
So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And may the Lord write the eternal truths of his word to our hearts this Wednesday night. So we're going to see tonight here in this section, in these array of verses here, this continuing thought that persecution will indeed come, but Christ's disciples will be fearless. So first we're going to see this clarification by Jesus of the, of the master-disciple relationship. He's then going to go on to give these 12 three reasons why they shouldn't be afraid. One, because the truth about his ministry will be known. Two, because their eternal destiny is secure. And three, because of their father's relentless, sovereign supervision over their lives. So those are those three reasons of why not to be afraid. And then the last two verses that I just read um, get into the public confession of Jesus as Lord. So first we're going to look here at verses 24 and 25 that the disciples of Jesus will be maligned. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? And we've talked about this before, but in the Jewish world, a disciple was, uh, for better or for worse, a slave of sorts to the rabbi that he followed. And he certainly was not superior to or more exalted than this teacher that he followed. And that's what Jesus says here. A disciple is not above his teacher. He says, nor, and there's sort of a a re-emphasizing here by Jesus. And we see him do that a lot making two statements to really hammer home a point. He says, nor a servant above his master or a slave above his, his owner, above his Lord. And there's that, that, that universal truth. The slave can never be above his master. And how often do we see the apostles referring to themselves in this way? Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, Romans 1.1. 1, 1. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a slave of Christ, Galatians 1.10. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, Philippians 1.1. 1, 1. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ in James 1.1. 1, 1. Simeon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ in 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. 
and Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James in the first verse of Jude. And notice where they are positionally placing themselves as the slave to Christ. They're not calling Jesus their bro or their, or their best friend. They've recognized his supremacy over them, and they have a reverential fear of who he is, although it's, it is a relational um, aspect to it as well, which we're going to talk about. So Jesus gives this, this universal truth, and he's giving this universal truth here for a reason. He goes on in verse 25 to say, it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher. It must be enough. It must be sufficient or adequate for a disciple to attain to be like his teacher or to be as his teacher. And, again, he reduplicates it here, and the servant like his master. So it's the same principle. Again, um, given forth twice. Grant Osborne, he says, not only are disciples or slaves not greater than their teacher or master, but it is also their goal and their privilege to act like and perhaps to attain a status like their rabbi or or like their Lord. And he says this is the heart of discipleship. So we've we've got this universal truth here that says to be like their teacher, disciples must be imitators. And then I I wrote the same line, secondly, and it says, to be like their teacher, except this time teacher is capitalized. We're talking about the teacher. To be like their teacher, kingdom disciples must be imitators. To be like. How can you be like? Well, you're going to imitate the teacher. Paul says in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And what have we seen so far? We've seen this involvement of the 12 in Jesus's ministry. And now, as we saw at the beginning of chapter 10, there's this empowerment of his authority They have this authority to perform healing miracles and to cast out demons. And and through that, through this commissioning, we can see this process of his apostles being made to be like the master, like their master. J. Knox Chamblin, he he says here that the the missionaries, and he, he calls the apostles here missionaries, he says the missionaries' effective exercise of that authority that's been granted to them by Jesus depends on their recognizing that it's not their authority, but that it belongs to Jesus and that they are still under his authority. He went on to say, the danger, he says, yet the danger is not so much here that the disciples will try to teach or to rule over Jesus. So it's not that they're going to try to exceed over him, although we do see Peter maybe try to do that once or twice. He says, But the danger is really that they will refuse a duty that is beset with dangers. And if you refuse that duty, and he's calling them to this duty, if they refuse it, what are they doing when they refuse it? They're refusing to emulate their master. And that's the danger, implicit here in what Jesus is saying. Robert Gundry says that Matthew directs here these statements by Jesus against falsely professing Christians 
who exalt themselves above their persecuted teacher and Lord. How? He says, by evading persecution through keeping quiet. It's an interesting way to think about self-exaltation, but that in the moment of persecution, I'm not going to profess Jesus' name, and and that's the risk that that is inherent here in these um, words by Jesus. So we think about the way that Jesus has perfectly modeled all that he calls his disciples to emulate and endure. And we don't have time to, to walk through all the different ways that he's done that up to this point or that he's going to continue to do that in the last 18 chapters of this gospel. But we have to ask ourselves a question. Is there anything that Jesus has called for in kingdom disciples that we are unwilling to do? He's laid out his directives. He's laid out his requirements. He says, this is what you are to do. Is there anything in there that we're unwilling to do? And sort of like the flip side of that question then is that we ask ourselves as we struggle through some of those things is how greatly do we desire to emulate our master? How much do we want to be like Jesus? Well, Jesus goes on then in the third Um, continuing on here in in verse 25, the second part, it says, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebul. And that's not really a, I'm not sure if this is going to happen. This is the the sense of the word since. Since they have called or addressed the master of the house or the householder as Beelzebul. And there was not the direct wording here, but we saw this back in in Matthew chapter 9, verse 34, and in chapter 12, we are going to see it directly. Um, I'll read that in just a second. But he says, since they are going to do this, and since they have done this, this is like sort of a continuing slur against Jesus by the Pharisees, by the scribes. He says, how much more will they malign those of his household? Or it's actually a little bit more brief than that. How much more his house? And, of course, that's a rhetorical question there by Jesus. And if what he's saying is if the capital T teacher is maligned, why would his students, why would his disciples, why would his pupils expect anything less in the mission that he has called them to? Why would they think that acceptance is possible from a world that hates him? And, of course, who is this master of the house? that was blasphemed by being called Beelzebul. And that's him, of course, even though he doesn't say that directly, but that is him. And in Matthew 12, 24, we're going to see this. It says, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. And you could spend a lot of time just reading about this name, Beelzebul, all sorts of different ideas of of, of the history of that name and of the false gods, but, but essentially it's a false god that is later in, in the time of Jesus equated with the ministry of Satan. And so they have willfully, in these statements, they have willfully rejected the Messiah and not just rejected him, but they have called him Satan. They've attributed his work to the work of Satan. 
And so if, if the persecutors of Jesus had the audacity to speak so perversely to, and this is sort of a, a description here by John Gill, but, but to he who was their master, and I'm referring to um, the disciples here, their master, a teacher that came from God and taught as never man did and was worthy of the utmost deference that could be paid. So if that's the way they spoke of that kind of person, so perversely, then how much more recklessly and contemptuously will they malign and persecute then the followers of Jesus? And what's the implication? That negative responses, you better be ready for them on this mission. Negative responses are going to come. Jesus said in John 15, he says, if the world hates you, in verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And Michael Wilkins here, he says, the, the accusation that Jesus has formed an alliance with Satan, and that's essentially what the Pharisees are saying. Jesus has formed an alliance with Satan. He says, this accusation that Jesus has done that to carry out his work, he says, it will be naturally then lodged against Jesus' disciples as well. And so if the master suffered greatly, does it not stand to reason that his disciples will as well? 2 Corinthians 1.5, we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. 2 Timothy 2.3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 4.13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. But notice here, as Jesus speaks, he says, how much more of, of the house, how much more will they malign of the house? And notice he doesn't use the word slaves there. He doesn't say, and then they're going to do the same thing to you, slaves. But he calls them his, his household. And John Chrysostom, he says, this demonstrates here, just in the, this wording here, this demonstrates this close relationship that the teacher has with every one of his disciples. Well, this idea then, so we draw out some application, the idea that you can follow Jesus and be accepted by this world, it's a lie. There's no other way to put it. To, be, to think that you can do both of those things is a lie. But very unfortunately, that lie, that ideology, is very pervasive in today's evangelical world. But if the teacher that we profess as kingdom disciples, if the teacher that we profess to follow was violently murdered, why would we expect then, as his disciples, why would we expect comfort, ease, and tranquility if we're truly following his ways? The same things that he did, the same words that he taught, 
why would we expect better treatment? Do you expect to be regarded more highly than Jesus was? Or to receive better treatment than Jesus did? In Acts chapter 5, after um, the, the apostles were scourged, we talked about that last week, what that was like, but after they were scourged by the captain of the temple, it says that the apostles left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And of course, that's the name of Jesus. In every day, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ or that the Messiah is Jesus. But it is, at times, a love for this world, the life of this world and the things of this world that are so alluring to us that when the promised persecution comes, there are some who abandon ship. I'm out. I'm not staying for this. They abandon ship and they prove then that they fall into the same category as one of the initial 12, the last listed one, not a disciple, Judas Iscariot. Well, let's look to verses 26 and 27. We're going to see two different kinds of disclosure here. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. So Jesus goes on here with this word so. He's saying, you know, consequently, because of what I just said, though, there is no need to be frightened by these persecutors. They're going to come, but you have no reason to be afraid of them. In fact, this is a command by Jesus that a kingdom disciple's life should be characterized by a lack of fear. A lack of fear. Yes, the mission's going to be dangerous. He's already promised that. He's going to continue to promise that. This will be a dangerous mission, but the sovereign God is in charge, and so there's no need to fear. He says, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed. There's nothing that is kept secret that's not going to be made fully known, that's not going to be disclosed. Not one of the evils carried out against Christ's church has escaped the notice of God. None of them. None of the future ones that are are yet to be carried out against Christ's church will escape his notice. And the sins that people think that they have committed with impunity or that they've gotten away with, no judgment, will be revealed. Jesus says that's a certainty, that's a fact, that is a promise. Now, Craig Blomberg, speaking of this verse here, he says, if Christians had to look forward only to a life of suffering and persecution, they might well despair or or even more likely, he says, they might abandon all Christian commitment. That was all you knew, all you heard. He says, but the future holds much more for the believer. Judgment day is coming when God will eternally compensate his people 
for their suffering, and he will punish their enemies forever. John Gill says, Time would bring all things to light. When the wickedness of these men would be discovered, and he's speaking a little bit more specifically of of the evil plans of the Pharisees, he says, when the wickedness of these men would be discovered, their evil designs seen through, which were now covered with the specious pretenses of sanctity. So he says that they've, they, they covered it up and they tried to act like what they were doing was good, noble, and righteous, but it was pretentious. He says in their, their zeal for religion and the glory of God, he says all that's going to be exposed. In the innocence and integrity of him, that's referring to Jesus and his disciples, would be made manifest. It could not be hidden. All these things that were perpetrated against Christ and his disciples would not be concealed. And Jesus goes on saying, or hidden that will not be known. There's nothing hidden that will not be learned or or found out. We talked about this a little bit last week, but this event that happens in AD 70 with the destruction of the temple, which is the judgment of the Lord upon the house of Israel, anticipates the day when the Son of Man is going to expose and judge the secrets of all mankind. We see that a sense of that in Matthew 19, 28, where Jesus says to his disciples, Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So there is that promise. There is that hope. So yes, there is a lot of difficulty that is promised. But the disciples, they they set their eyes much further down the road. It isn't for the things of this world. It isn't for the glory of, of mankind. Hilary of Poitiers, who is called the Athanasius of the West, He says, Jesus is admonishing us, therefore, that we are not to fear our persecutors' threats or stratagems or power because the day of judgment will reveal that these were all nothing and empty. So even just the the revelation of all these devices, um, essentially by the sons of Satan to try to destroy the sons of God, will be revealed to have come to naught. They will not have succeeded. In verse 27, we read, What I tell you in the dark, what I speak to you in the dark, this is a sense of of secrecy. And and so now we're we're shifting here. So in verse 26, we saw this focus on the the evil of the persecutors, but now we're, we're going to transition into the words of the apostles. And so what Jesus had taught to his disciples in private, the mysteries of his kingdom, the explanations of his teachings, things that no one else saw, that nobody else heard, um, those types of things we could say were spoken to them in the dark. But besides even that element of private instruction to the twelve, We also have this aspect of of anything that was publicly declared by Jesus that fell upon deaf ears or upon a a, a heart of stone. 
and especially his parables, um, that was darkness to those people. It was darkness to, to, their, to their eyes. It was hidden from their understanding. When we get to Matthew chapter 13, we'll see that question from the disciples to Jesus where they say, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them to you. It has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. So you have been given this private understanding, but to them it has not been given. For the one who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And so we have this sense of of darkness around the majority of people who have heard the public teaching of Jesus. But he says those things that you've heard, those things that have been disclosed to you, he says, say in the light. Say it openly. Say it publicly. These things that I've instructed you in are not meant to be kept hidden. They're not meant to be kept under a a rock. And even though they did for a time divinely fall on hardened deaf ears in Israel, the time was coming that Jesus' gospel was going to be heralded in such a public way that sometimes very receptive ears were going to hear these things. Think of the day of Pentecost, the the day of this public declaration by Peter and the other apostles. So Jesus says, say it in the light, and what you hear whispered. really kind of says there what you hear in one ear, which is the connotation of of whispering. It sort of was a a physician, the the way that the physicians communicated with their patients at this time. But he says, what you hear in one ear, so it's an idiom for what you've heard whispered to you privately. Um, So again, he's reemphasizing his statements of dark, whispered, private, all the same kind of thing. He says, proclaim on the housetops. What does that mean? Well, he's essentially telling them, this is a very public thing. And the the word here for proclaim is the same word that we use for preach, keruso. So I want you to, to preach this from the rooftops, and there's a sense of urgency even in this, in this command to proclaim on the housetops. And again, contrasting with dark, whispered, and private, now we see light, housetops, and public. So it's the complete opposite. And in the first century, important public announcements were often given from flat rooftops. And so th- this would not have been a, a, something they did not understand. They knew exactly what he meant by this. And, and he, their understanding here from Jesus that this is going to characterize their mission. Not just that they would stand physically on rooftops to declare it, but it would be this regular, bold, public proclamation, powerful in its intensity. And we see them praying for that. So I read to you from Acts 5, but in the previous chapter, when they pray to the Lord, in Acts chapter 4, it says, they prayed, and now, Lord, look upon their threats. 
that's the persecutors, and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, reminiscent of Pentecost, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So R.T. France, he says here, there's a twofold duty then for the disciple. The, the disciple's duty is not merely the negative of avoiding fear, but also the positive duty of bold proclamation in the face of opposition. And so what is, it, what is going to be proclaimed? The message of Christ's kingdom, his, go, his gospel, his commands for the kingdom disciples. They're all meant to be publicly preached. We see that in the Great Commission then. He'll say, um, all that I have commanded you in Matthew 28, 19. J. Knox Chamblin, he says, the preaching that these apostles will do and successive generations of disciples will include warnings of the judgment that is sure to fall on Messiah's enemies. But the cardinal theme of that proclamation or of that preaching will be the gospel of the kingdom, which by heeding, the listeners can escape the wrath to come. So there's, a, there's, a, there's an urgency in this gospel proclamation. Well, moving on then to verse 28, we, see, we saw two types of disclosure. Now we see two kinds of death. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus says, don't be frightened of those who kill. Those who are able to kill the physical body, this, this sense of the physical body is representative of mortal life. Mortal life. He says, stop being afraid. Don't be afraid at any time. Because these are just those who can kill the body. There's allusion there to, to martyrdom, and the martyrdom had already been promised in verse 21. But there's something they can't do. He says they cannot kill the soul. They lack the ability. They lack the power to do anything to your soul, which is the, the seat and center of, of life that transcends our earthly aspect of life. It's so much more than just these, these physical bodies that we have. And so he, he's saying here that no matter how terrifying these experiences of persecution are for you, there's a limit to the effects that it can have. The most that these persecutors can do is kill the physical body and nothing more. And that's all they could do with Jesus. They could kill him and nothing more. John Gill says, the taking away of the lives of good men, we could include good women, of good men and good women is of no disadvantage to them, but sends them the sooner out of this troublesome world 
to their father's house to partake of those joys that will never end. But the most important part of the body, the soul, it lives on. And even the effects on the killing of the temporal body are limited. Why? Because God's going to raise up bodies of every human being from the dead to be reunited with its soul. And for his saints, what are they going to receive? They're going to receive a glorified body. Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we wait await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So Jesus says, don't fear these men. Don't fear these persecutors. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He said, instead, you better be properly fearful of, frightened of the one who does have the ability, who has the power to ruin and to destroy both the physical body and the soul. And that would be an eternal torment. You might want to jot down Isaiah 10.18. It's a passage you can look at that sort of makes that same type of statement about God. But only God holds the sovereign power over the physical body and the eternal soul. And his, his destruction then, it's an everlasting torment of these two things, of the body and the soul. And because of that, then he should be properly feared. Now, while this is an everlasting destruction, some people um, gather from this that this is annihilation of the soul. He's not speaking of annihilation. He's not speaking of a ceasing to exist. He's speaking of an eternal separation from the blessedness of Christ. And instead of the, and instead they, are, they, will, they will have upon them the eternal presence of Christ in the pouring out of his wrath. Where? Out of existence? No, he says in hell. Which is a clue and an indicator that you're not annihilated from existence. This eternal judgment from God, this pouring out of his wrath, it will take place eternally in hell. Leon Morris, he says, Jesus is speaking of the destruction of all that makes for a rich and meaningful life. He says, not of the cessation of life's existence. And so in the context then of what Jesus is saying, it is this proper fear of God that is going to impel the disciple to stay faithful to Christ when they're placed on trial. So we kind of keep coming back to this essence of these, of these public trials. And that's not the only way that people face persecution, but that is one of the more common themes of what Jesus has been talking about in this chapter. But think of that, that faith that impelled people to stand firm in the day of persecution. Think back to Daniel 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what did they say? They said, we fear God. I'm paraphrasing. We fear God more than we fear this fiery furnace that you are threatening us with. And so they feared 
God more than they feared the most powerful man on this earth at the time. 1 Peter 4.19 says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I'd like to read to you just a, a little bit here from Fox's Book of Martyrs about two men who, who had a great fear of God far more than a fear of man or a fear of martyrdom. And this is the recording of the martyrdom of two bishops, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. First, I want to read to you from a, a more modern author whose name is Scott Hubbard. And he says, Bishops Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley are fastened together in history primarily because they were fastened to the same stake on October 16, 1555, on the north side of Oxford. But Latimer and Ridley, he says, share more than a martyrdom. The bishops also join each other on the list of England's most influential reformers, men and women whose allegiance to Scripture and the glory of Christ transformed England from a Catholic kingdom to a lighthouse of Reformation. Well, from Fox's Book of Martyrs then, and and this is just a tiny snippet from from what he had to write about this, um, but he he records the narrative of the events that happened. He said, Dr. Ridley then requested of Lord Williams to advocate with the Queen the cause of some poor men to whom he had when Bishop granted leases but which the present bishop refused to confirm. So he was asking if there's any way for them to sort of be released from this uh, appointment of death. But the bishop refused. And so he writes, A lighted stick was now laid at Dr. Ridley's feet, which caused Mr. Latimer to say, Be of good cheer, Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, Light up such a candle in England as I trust will never be put out. When Dr. Ridley saw the fire flaming up towards him, he cried with a wonderful, loud voice, Lord, Lord, receive my spirit. Master Latimer crying as vehemently on the other side, O Father of heaven, receive my soul. And they received the flame as if they were embracing of it. After that, he had stroked his face with his hands and, as it were, bathed them a little in the fire. He soon died with very little pain or none, or at least that's what it seemed. And John Fox says, Well, dead they are, and the reward of this world they have already. What reward remaineth for them in heaven the day of the Lord's glory when he cometh with his saints shall declare. And then coming back to Scott Hubbard, he says three years later, Mary I, and she was known as as Bloody Mary, she died and she passed the kingdom to her half-sister Elizabeth, who was a Protestant queen. And he says, and Latimer and Ridley's candle burst into a torch. But the point of that was not 
necessarily of, of what happened later. The point of that was that they had a fear of God that exceeded a fear of, of dying by fire. And that is what Jesus says is, if this is what I bring you to, if this is the persecution that I bring you to, remember this. Remember this. Well, he goes on then in verse, verses 29 through 31. So we, saw, um, we saw the two kinds of death And now we see quickly two kinds of creatures are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. And so he says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And of course, he's asking that again rhetorically. He says, aren't two sparrows sold for one sixteenth of a denarius? Essentially, this is something that's almost a, a worthless cost. Sparrows were actually considered to be food for the poor, and they were the cheapest food that they could, that someone could buy to eat. A penny, which is the word that's used here, was the smallest coin in the Roman world. It was less than an hour's um, wage. But as he talks then about the sparrow, this very seemingly insignificant bird, he says, Not one of them, and who knows how many sparrows there are in this world, but he says not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. He says something that is of what seems to be such small importance, he says it can not fall to the ground without the knowledge and consent of, he doesn't say my father, he says your father. He's he's again reminding them of that relationship that they have with the Heavenly Father. He says, without the knowledge and consent of your Father. Luke 12, in in a semi-parallel passage, it says, not one of them, referring to the, the sparrows, not one of them is forgotten before God. But, verse 30, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. And so, Far greater than a sparrow, he is now um, bringing it to humans. He says, the hairs of your head are counted. And that word there, counted, uh, the Greek verb there is arithmeo, which, you know, you can probably sense is the word where the word arithmetic comes from. But he says, the hairs of your head are counted. And that word counted there is actually in in a perfect tense, which means that there is a continuing interest by God in his people. This wasn't a a one-time event and then sort of this distant isolation from God. It's a continuing interest by God in his people. We we see this expression even of of the hairs of people's head um, used throughout Scripture. If you remember back when Jonathan led the people of Israel to a great victory and Saul very foolishly was going to try to kill his own son, in 1 Samuel 14, the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. Paul makes a similar declaration 
If you remember late in the book of Acts, as they think that they're going to be shipwrecked and drowned, he says in Acts 27, Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. So what do we gather from what Jesus is saying here? We should see that there is, there's no level of detail that's too small for God. No, he watches, he watches over every aspect, every detail, even the most minute things in our lives. And, and, and so we see then, as D.A. Carson says, that Jesus says that God's sovereignty over the tiniest detail knowing that he cares about even the smallest details, he says, should give us confidence then that, yes, he does superintend the larger matters of life. Now, of course, you can read Psalm 139 to read of this marvelous account of the Creator's intimate knowledge of those that he has made and and continues to care for. And so in verse 31, then, Jesus says, Fear not, therefore. Consequently, because of what I've just said, this comparison that I've made, don't be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. You're you're far superior in value qualitatively to all the sparrows of the world. And once again, we see Jesus, and he's making this argument as he's done before. He's making an argument from the lesser to the greater. The lesser is the sparrow, the least important food source, something that we would call insignificant, to the greater, which is the human, the most important, or we could say the apex of God's creation, and so that is a significant thing. Remember back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 26, where he says, are you not of more value than they, referring to the birds of the field? But so it is that the time of death for the most insignificant of birds is fixed by God's providence, and it happens under his care, under his watchful care. And Jesus is saying, if birds receive that kind of care from God, how much more is he going to care for his own precious children, especially in their darkest hours of persecution under the threat of martyrdom? And so we see here then in this passage overall, don't be afraid of men, but also don't mistrust the providence of God. So it's not just the the not being afraid of men, but remember the providence of God. So I'll ask you, do you live your life in the confidence that nothing could happen to even one hair of your head unless God has sovereignly decreed it. It's quite a thought. And not something we think about too often, but if God cares so deeply for even a small sparrow, how much more is he going to care for his, for his sent ones? Remember we saw that as, as the, the apostles from early in this chapter, they're the sent ones, the kingdom disciples. What legitimate reason then do we have to be afraid? Uh, we could come up with many reasons, but none of them could have the word legitimate in front of them. And yes, the devil will make war on Christ's church. That's a certainty. But in his attempt to conquer Christ's church through martyrdom, what happens? 
The martyrs are instead conquering him through their martyrdom. We see that in Revelation 12, it says they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. And to that, the two martyrs from 1555 say amen, for they're part of that group. Janox Chamoney says, when on trial, remember who your true sovereign and judge is. Trust him who will not let your life fall to the ground. He's using that metaphor of the sparrow. Who will not let your life fall to the ground until your work is done. And he, he cited Acts 23.11 where Paul's saying that I have to go to Jerusalem and I will be going to Rome and nothing's going to happen to me until then because God's revealed that. But Chamberlain goes on and he says, and when sentenced to death, be assured that your father will raise you to life eternal. So that brings us then to these last two verses, 32 and 33, two kinds of testimony. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So everyone who acknowledges me before men. So with this in mind, with all of these things that I have instructed you, Jesus is saying, everyone who confesses me, Jesus, as a public profession of allegiance. And notice this is a a public type of testimony here a public profession allegiance and he says this is going to happen in the presence of others and he says everyone who does this it's a statement of totality there's not, there's not exceptions to this statement that he's making here and and when we see these expressions acknowledges before men denies before men. This is, this is a phrase that we would find common in injudicial settings. And what is the acknowledgement? What is the confession? The confession is, is very simple, is that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Messiah. Not Caesar is Lord, or whatever deity or person that they are trying to get you to pronounce as Lord. No, the confession is that Jesus is Lord. It's a simple confession, but it's a profound confession. Now here, Jesus especially has in view the conduct of disciples who are on trial. So I think we can see this as all-encompassing. It doesn't have to be just isolated to a trial, a big public trial. But I think that is, that is the main thrust of what he's talking about here. These, these trials before men who have the power to afflict, to imprison, and to kill them. And just thinking of the, the consequences of that, we see again that this is not just about these months that they may spend traveling throughout Israel, but this is going to be the enduring nature of the mission of, of the twelve and of the disciples that carry on after them. 
And of course, we see that prolifically in Acts. Jane Oxchamani says, Christ's faithful witnesses will deny room to denial. So I'm going to deny the denial from my life. He says they will refuse to refuse Jesus, whatever the consequences. And those who do that, Jesus says, everyone who does that, he says, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. I, in turn, I promise that I will acknowledge these confessors in the presence of my Father in heaven, in joy, we could say. And he says, my Father here. There's not um, an assumption about these 12 before they go out being sons of the Heavenly Father. We know one of them was not. But he says, you will prove, you will demonstrate your identity as true children of the Father by your testimony before the people. And again, that goes all the way back to, to what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. It is, it is not just the hearing, but how does obedi- what does obedience look like? In doing. In doing the commands of the Master. And so not only is Jesus going to acknowledge these ones at the final judgment, but for those who are brought to martyrdom, who are persecuted in such way, who are put on public trial, he is also going to acknowledge them in their very hour of death. And where do we see that so clearly? But in the martyrdom of Stephen. Stephen's there, and he's given this view of Christ standing to receive him, to acknowledge him before the Father as he had just so faithfully confessed Jesus Christ before the persecutors who were holding rocks in their hands to kill him. 2 Timothy 2.11 says, The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us, which leads right into these final words in verse 33, but whoever denies me before men. So this is a strong contrast to the previous verse, but each one who repudiates or who disowns me, who disavows their allegiance to me in the presence of others, again, this is a a public renunciation of Christ. This is the language of apostasy. Grant Osborne says, in this persecution passage, it means that people are caving into pressure and they are renouncing Christ to avoid beatings or death. And Jesus says, those who do that, in those final hours, He says, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. I, in turn, will repudiate you. I will repudiate such a one who does that in the presence of my Father in heaven, and this won't be in joy. Instead, this will be in judgment. And, of course, this harkens back to what he said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And then I will declare to them I never knew you. 
Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And, and this, this denial here by Jesus, it's an irrevocable statement of eschatological judgment. And so notice here, there's two kinds of testimony. There's not three, there's not four, there's two. There's a public confession of allegiance to Christ, no matter the circumstances, or there is a public disavowal of allegiance. The command to not fear is found roughly a hundred times throughout Scripture, and of course, the command to not fear often carries different context of, of what the person, what the, the child of God is, is not to fear. But as we think about that command to not fear, who is it that will publicly confess Christ no matter how extreme the circumstances? And as we think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as we think about Stephen, as we think about Paul, who at one time was almost torn in half as he was publicly proclaiming Christ. As we think about Latimer and Ridley, as we think about all those who have walked this path, what are they characterized by? They're characterized by a fear of God that exceeds the fear of men. It's a very simple statement, but there are tremendous implications to the carrying out of what that means. In Daniel Doriani's um, ESV commentary, he quotes Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he says he wrote this from his prison cell. He says, those who are still afraid of men have no fear of God. And those who have fear of God have ceased to be afraid of men. And so the question before us is who do you fear? And that will be the same question tomorrow and the next day. And so it's that enduring, it's, it's not a, a one-time statement, I'll say it today, tomorrow could be different, but it's an enduring, persevering faith in Christ, a persevering love for Christ, a desire to, to be like the Master, as we saw at the beginning of these verses tonight, faithfully following in whatever steps He calls us to. He may not call us to physical persecution, but He might. And if he does, who will we demonstrate that we fear in those final hours? And may God grant to us the strength, as he has promised that he will in those very hours. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, there is a great weightiness at times as we consider the mission that you have given to us. And there are times that 
it seems like it would be so easy to just shrink back and, and fall away. But as you promised to your disciples, you have given to us the Holy Spirit of God to encourage our hearts, to strengthen us, who will, as you have promised, give us the very words to say in these moments of great persecution, even unto death. You have given to us the ordinary means of grace whereby we might regularly gather with the other kingdom disciples to encourage one another to press on forward together as we put our eyes far ahead to the blessed hope, to all the promises that are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Help us tonight, O Lord, to fear God above all else. And may that be the same fear that we have as we wake, as we wake tomorrow, if you so will. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.